teacher, Joyce Myers, a mother and the, of the faith in the kingdom of God, a teacher, an author, and a conference speaker. In the Old Testament, in the Bible, we see uh, prophetesses like Moses' sister, Miriam. She was the third uh, of the leadership team of Israel. Deborah, we talked about last week, who was a, the judge and the mother of Israel and a commander of the army of Israel, and she was also a prophetess. You have Huldah, who was a prophetess to King Josiah in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have Anna, who was a prophet, a prophetess who prophesied over the baby Jesus. We have Philip's daughters. Some translations say four virgin daughters who prophesied. That word it is the same word for prophet. These were four prophetesses. They held the office of a prophet. And of course, Peter says that when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon some flesh, which male in particular, when God pours out his spirit on just men, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? No. Come on, ladies. Is that what the Bible says? No. The Bible says that when God pours out his spirit upon all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. I could, my first Bible teacher was a woman. I could go on and on how women have empowered the world for thousands of years in every arena of life, at the highest levels in the military and economics in the business sector and the education sector and the media and entertainment, but not in the most powerful organization on the planet, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Women can lead in every sector of society, but when you come into the church, shut up and sit down. But not up in here. Amen. I love strong women, man. They are God-ordained, God-created, God-anointed, intelligent, powerful, courageous people that you want on your team. But many people have been taught that in the church, women are to be relegated to Sunday school. You can teach the children. Uh, you, can, you can pray. If you do come up here and do exactly what I'm doing right now, we can't call it preaching. We'll call it sharing. But what are you going to do with these just a few women I've just mentioned so far. What do we do with Deborah? What do we do with Huldah? What do we do with Miriam? What do we do with Mother Teresa? What do we do with Margaret Thatcher? What do we do with Joan of Arc? What do we do with these women? What category do we put them in? This belief that women are to be uh, relegated, restricted, and limited have come from only three scriptures in the entire Bible. which we're going to unpack today. And I pray, ladies, that you are liberated to be all that God has ordained you and created you and anointed you to be. Amen. Can I hear an amen? amen? Now, years ago, the elders of the church and I uh, researched the scriptures that I'm going to be teaching on today. Because we recognize women in our own body who are clearly anointed and gifted to lead at the highest level as pastors and elders and prophets and evangelists. And we're like, well, what do we do? And so I interviewed pastors all over San Diego. I researched pastors all over the world, looking on their websites, reading the books. Um, and we looked into the scriptures to make sure that if we were to put women in our body at the highest level of leadership, that we are biblically accurate. Um, I, we will not go outside the word of God. Uh, however, we will be in the word of God and if the Bible clearly says that women are to lead, then that's what they are going to do here. So today, my message is, can women teach and lead in the church? Now, I can't cover all the points in all these passages, but I believe I'll cover enough to at least, if you've been taught that women are not to lead, preach, teach in the church, you'll have some food for thought today. Some of you, I believe the lights will go on, and uh, you'll have the freedom and the permission to operate at the highest levels. First, I'm going to look at Paul because he is the one who penned the three verses that, look, has even been, either been used sincerely, which I believe most, uh, most men that have taught over the centuries 
sincerely do not want to sin against Scripture. They do not want to go outside of Scripture. And they believe the Bible actually says women are not to preach, to lead, and to uh, teach men in, in particular. But then there are those who have uh, used these passages to control women. The, the, their intent wasn't to be faithful to Scripture. Their intent was to use the Scripture to chain women so that they would submit to their leadership. So, Paul, uh, I've heard, I've talked to women over the last almost 40 years of ministry who hate him because of these three scriptures. That Paul is a male chauvinist who suppresses women. However, in all of other Paul's other writings, he empowers women. So what gives? Like in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, the greatest uh, treatise on uh, New Testament theology, out of the whole Bible, the book of Romans is the pinnacle of theology. In that book and all the other books he wrote, except for the three scriptures in Corinthians and in uh, 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, nowhere in the book of Romans does he restrict women or in any other book. Now, if this was Paul's theology or Jesus' kingdom theology, Paul would have been saying this to every church everywhere. But in the book of Romans, not only does he not restrict women, in the last chapter, Romans 16, he lists his apostolic team. He lists his pastoral team. He lists them by name, all the way down. And in this list, there are 10 women and 19 men who are listed. And the first name Launch on chapter 16, the first name out of the, out of the gate is Phoebe, who was a pastor of her own house church. In fact, the word is used as deacon, and called, Paul called her my co-worker, which is the same term he used for Timothy and for Titus and for the other apostolic uh, men on his team. There was also Priscilla, who Paul actually calls an apostle. And Priscilla and Aquila were husband and wife, and the Bible says that they taught, taught Apollos the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because he was only taught Apollos in the book of Acts, was, was preaching John's baptism, and so it says that Aquila and Priscilla pulled him aside and, and uh, taught him the next step. And when Aquila and Priscilla's names are ever written in the Bible, husband and wife, her name comes before his name six times showing that she was the preeminent apostle of that relationship. Junia, also in Romans chapter 16, Paul calls Junia an apostle. So now we have at least three apostles that were female in the New Testament that were on Paul's apostolic team. This is remarkable coming from a first century uh, Pharisee in Judaism, which I taught last week. Women had no vote, no voice. They could not even be a witness in a court of law. If a male came over to the house as a dinner guest the wife had to eat in another room she had to wear a veil out in public or else she, he could divorce her they could divorce women for any reason whatsoever judaism seriously severely oppressed women they were the property of the husband like legally the property of the husband and here is paul allowing women to operate at the highest levels in the kingdom of god what happened to this Pharisee? How's that possible? Anybody? Jesus. Jesus taught him kingdom. He was a leader in Judaism. Then the Son of God, the resurrected Christ, shows up and teaches Paul, this is actually how I see women, how I made women, and how women to operate in the kingdom of God. So Paul actually... Contrary to his reputation by the misinterpretation of three scriptures, Paul uh, is not an oppressor of women. He is one of the greatest empowers of women the world's ever seen. Amen. The Bible has 40 authors written over a 1,450-year span from several countries, multiple cultures, and various situations. That it, it, only, it seems that yet only one man seems to restrict women from leadership. 
If God wanted to restrict women, why were the other 39 authors throughout the Bible completely silent on the matter? And Paul, who wrote to nine churches, why in only two churches does it seem that he wrote restriction on women? Why does Paul empower women in some places and restrict them in others? In the book of Galatians, Paul says that the Galatians church, in Christ there is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So what gives? Put plainly, these three short passages that seem to put restrictions on women were written to two specific churches and two specific locations for specific cultural reasons. And I'm going to do my best to prove that to you from the scriptures today. When my, my 18-year-old son, Josiah, asked me, what are you preaching on this Sunday? Daddy asked me every week. Um, and I said, uh, I'm preaching on how uh, the Bible teaches that women are to be quiet in church and to only learn from the husbands at home. And he, he says, but that was a long time ago in a different culture, Dad. I was like, if I could just say that and be done with it, that would be great. However, because of a, the way it's been taught for so long, we have to undo some stuff today. So another point is that Paul instructed, now this is important. I'm going to give you a lot of information today, so just process quickly with me. Paul, and almost all of his other letters, told them, pass these letter, letters around to all the other churches too. So the things he's teaching, he wants spread throughout Christendom. But he, except for 1 Timothy, that he's writing to Timothy, who was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, which was a mega church. It was one of the most powerful, influential churches in the world. And 1 Timothy, he did not say to spread this around to all the other churches. And in 1 Corinthians, which is also the place where you find two scriptures that seem to restrict women, he does not tell them to spread this, church, this, this letter to all the other churches because he was answering questions that that church, in particular, in their cultural situation, the First Corinthians is a Q&A. They sent Paul questions, and Paul was answering their questions. And First Corinthians, the first letter. And Second Corinthians, he says, spread this letter all over the place. Are you following me? Yeah. So the three scriptures we're going to look at today is First Timothy 2, 11 through 12, 11 through 15. That's to the church at Ephesus, who Timothy was the pastor of. And also 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, and 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 38. You say, how are we going to do all that in one sermon, Pastor? I don't know, but let's go. It's very important to put these scriptures in their proper context. Both cities were steeped in the cultic practice of fertility worship, sexual pleasure, and sacred prostitution. Diana, the goddess Diana, was worshipped in Ephesus, and, the, and, and in Corinth, they worshipped Aphrodite. So let's start with Ephesus. Ephesus, the first century Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, had a new Roman state. The Romans had taken over the Grecian Empire. And so Rome now uh, is, is uh, occupying Ephesus, they had a new culture, was the Greco-Roman culture, where these two cultures are now blending, and a brand new faith called Christianity, against the backdrop and in the heart of an old cult worship of the goddess Diana, the goddess of fertility. Now watch this, and this will make sense when we look at the scripture he writes to Timothy. You see what I mean about context. She was the goddess of fertility and a protector of mothers and infants during childbirth. That'll be very important in a minute. So Diana, imagine here in Escondido, the right out here is this massive statue of this woman with a crown on her head showing uh, authority and rulership and eggs all around her waist showing fertility. And this was the goddess of that city. So it was a matriarchal female worship um, society and community where the women dominated. In fact, 28 women in Ephesus held high-ranking authority. They were priestesses in a Greco-Roman city that could exercise. Here's, here's the areas of influence where 28 leading women led the city. And uh, liturgy, that is the cultic spiritual 
practice in that city. They were over that. They were also over the legislative, which is obviously making of laws, the judicial, which is the implementation of the laws, the financial, and the military. Women ruled every one of those sectors of society. It is against this cultural background that Paul writes a letter to Timothy, his young, timid disciple. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that Paul found Timothy, who was like either a teenager or in his young 20s. And the Bible in first, uh, Second Timothy, you know, Paul is telling Timothy, don't be timid. God has not given you a spirit of fear. Well, you can imagine why Paul would have to write that to him. And also Paul wrote to Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach. that gets upset every once in a while. Well, you can understand why Timothy was a little intimidated. He has to take Paul's new kingdom theology that Jesus gave to Paul. Paul gives it to Timothy. And Timothy, this young man, has to stand up in this female-worshiping, cultic, matriarchal society and say things like in Ephesians chapter 5 that women are to submit to the headship of their husbands. And uh, we don't worship the goddess Diana anymore. We worship Jesus. And women did not come first. Men came first. I mean, this is what was happening in the Ephesian church is the women, as Timothy is teaching this, are interrupting the service They're debating what he's teaching. It it would be like if in our culture, people taught such things like women, you just need to be quiet in church. Could you imagine if that was said to women? Oh, wait a minute. It has been. See, this is where the women's lib movement in the 60s came from, right? The oppression of women. And the women rose up. This is what was happening in Ephesus. But imagine if in our culture, we had the goddess Diana that we were worshiping. And then the teaching comes in and God trying to put things into right spiritual order. So this is what Timothy's up against. With that context, let's read this verse. First Timothy 2, 11 through 5. A woman must quietly receive instruction with all submissiveness. Already the hair's on the back of your neck. Just be patient. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet in the congregation. For Adam was formed first by God from the earth, then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman who was led astray and fell into sin. But women will be preserved and saved through the pain and dangers of the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control and discretion. Okay. Take that scripture out of context and preach it. And what do you got? Some angry women who are dishonored, oppressed, and restricted in church. You can lead in the military. You can lead in, the, uh, in commerce. You can lead in education. You can even teach men. You can train men in the military. You can be a presenter in the, in the marketplace. You can be in education and be a professor teaching men, but not in the church. It doesn't even make sense, let alone it is not scripturally based. So let's unpack this real quick. First of all, for Paul to even suggest that a woman could be educated in church is revolutionary. Because in Judaism, women were not educated, nor were they allowed to be, and certainly not along with the men. Secondly, and this is, these next few points are going to be really, really huge for some of you. With all submissiveness, that word submissive does not mean submitting to the instructor, but to the instruction. If you look at that grammatical structure in the Greek, what he was saying was they are chafing against what's being taught. So just listen. Just submit to this kingdom theology. And what was that kingdom theology? We'll get it to it in a minute. Well, I'll tell you right now. Well, I already told you. That women do not have the preeminence over men. Which is why he says this. This phrase, this is the one right here that has, it, this is the cornerstone of the oppression of women in the church throughout the centuries. This right here. That a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man, right? That's it. All right. 
the, this is so interesting. There are 17 Greek words Paul could have used for authority over. But he chooses one specific word that is only used one time in the entire Bible. Why would he choose this one word, this Greek word that's never used anywhere else in the Bible for authority when there's 17 other words he could have used? Because this particular word is exactly what he wanted to say into that Ephesian culture that was worshiping the goddess Diana, who, by the way, in the, the Greek myth, mythology, believed that Diana came first and her male counterpart came second. Therefore, she has superiority. And so the word he chooses is the word authentine, which means literally to murder with one's own hand. It means to commit, even, uh, to commit suicide. It's about violence. Authority that has this violent nature to it. It evolved into, quote, originate with one's own hand or to be the author of or authentic. In other words, what he was saying was that a woman, a wife in particular, is, first of all, man did not come from woman. You're not the author of the male species. And secondly, you are not to take authority over or dominate or control violently your husband's which is what was happening in that culture. They had the dominance. So this is the way many scholars believe that this should have been written. Not that a woman can't teach or even can't teach men, but it's not that they can't teach, it's what they can't teach. Paul was saying to the women... You've been raised in a culture that says women are to dominate men and it's a matriarchal society because the goddess Diana rules over this city. She came first and her male counterpart came second. You cannot teach that in the church because that's not kingdom theology. So he's slamming into a culture with a completely new belief system. Which is why he talks about Adam came first, then Eve. Why would he even talk about that? Why is he talking about the order of creation? Because it's the opposite of the female worship cult that they were raised in. And remember, Paul has already empowered women to be deacons, pastors, and apostles. All who taught. Which is why in 1 Corinthians, now watch this. If women are supposed to be quiet in church, then why would he write this in 1 Corinthians, which is another book where it seems to restrict women. Out of that same book that we say women are to be restricted in church, he says, well, my brothers, everybody say ancestors. Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, one will teach, as long as it's a man. Doesn't say that. Another will tell some special revelation God has given. One will speak in tongues. Another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must be uh, to strengthen all of you. So Paul is saying to the Corinthian church that when you come together, brothers and sisters, everybody can teach, can prophesy, can have a revelation. The whole letter was about not shutting people down. It was about doing things decently and in order. That's what it's that's all he was saying. The things that need to be done decently and in order. That is why Paul talks about the order of creation. Now, this is an important point before we move on to the other scripture. When Paul talks about the creation order, and some have used this to say, see, this isn't cultural. Paul's going back to creation and saying that man, man was, was uh, created first, then woman. And then he says, and the woman was deceived, not the man. As though that means women are disqualified from leading because they were deceived in the Garden of Eden, right? Which means we can't trust all women because you're also easily deceived like Eve. So we can't trust your leadership or your teaching. That's what that was saying, if you believe that that's what that was saying, and that's what's been taught, which would also mean 
that Adam's disobedience did not rise to the level of Eve's deception. So I guess if you're easily deceived, you can't teach or lead, but if you disobey, you can. Clearly, that's not what Paul was saying. It would also mean this. Remember, Paul says that in Christ Jesus is neither male nor female, but we're all one in Christ. In other words, he's saying, we have all, the curse has been lifted from men and women who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's teaching, right? But not if you interpret this passage the way it's been interpreted. What it would mean is, Adam got delivered from the curse, but Eve didn't. Then he talks about women being saved in childbirth. What the heck? Where did, what, what, where'd that come from? Why would he throw that in there? Remember what I told you earlier about goddess Diana, right? That she protected women during childbirth. Like they looked to the goddess Diana. Wives and mothers would look to the goddess Diana for their spiritual empowerment for mothering and childbirth. Hmm, are there any other religions that look to a mother for spiritual guidance and strength? Yeah. Mary, in case you were wondering. Okay. Let's move to Corinth. I have to move along here. Is this helping anybody so far? Is this like some new information for some folks? Women, you feeling a little bit liberated just a little bit as I'm teaching? Or little, little bondages, little bands coming off? They snapping, they unloosing, huh? Feeling a little freer? Let's go like this. Just got free. Just elbow, elbow your husband in the ribs like this. Say, pay attention. Listen. In Corinth, they worship the goddess Aphrodite. She was the goddess of vanity and erotic pleasure. A thousand temple prostitutes who shaved their heads in devotion, worshipped at the temple, and engaged in orgies. The adulteresses in the town also had to shave their heads. Which now, when you understand that, makes all the sense in the world why Paul's talking about hair. See, if you take these scriptures out of biblical context, you don't even understand why he would bring up hair. Why is Paul talking about haircuts? Paul is writing to the Corinthians about living out the kingdom culture in a wildly sexualized, fertility-worshipping, immoral culture. Seducing and dominating men in this culture was a woman's claim to fame. Corinth was a seaport where sailors and businessmen traveled through a lot. Does it sound familiar? In fact, the women of Corinth were so immoral and they would seduce and dominate men that there was a phrase that was coined, a Corinthian woman, which was an insult because it described a particular type of woman, which was loose, brash, unruly, and domineering. So as I said earlier, you have to understand that 1 Corinthians is a Q&A. They wrote Paul a bunch of questions, and he's answering their questions. These are folks that are coming out of paganism. They're asking Paul about kingdom theology in a town that worships the nymph goddess Aphrodite. And so, it's so important to understand in the Greek, and I know this is a little heady, and I know it's a lot of information for you, but hopefully it's doing its job to get in there and unlock some things for you. In the Greek, they don't use punctuation like question marks, exclamation points, and periods. But there is a little letter that you put in front of a sentence that makes it a question. And so I'll give you an example. In the same book of 1 Corinthians, give you an example, uh, these scriptures should be read like this. What? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? 1 Corinthians 6, 2. What? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Nonsense. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians. What? Do you not know that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? 1 Corinthians 9, 6. Nonsense. It is not only I and Barnabas who must be working for a living. I could go on and on and on. These, all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, 
he is responding rhetorically with the questions, what? Nonsense. Are you kidding me? That's what you think? No. And he sets up these sentences. So if you understand when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, that if you read it from that uh, grammatical um, perspective, it would go like this. What? Women should not be silent during the church meeting. It should be silent during the church meetings. What? It's not proper for them to speak. What? They should be submissive just as the law says. What? If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home for it's improper to women to speak in meetings. Or Do you think the word of God originated with you, Corinthians? Or are you the only ones you think it was given to? If you claim to be a prophet or think you are spiritual, you should recognize that what I am saying is a command from the Lord himself. But if you do not recognize this, you yourself will not be recognized. That puts a whole different spin, maybe a bad term, a whole different understanding of that passage. Now, Paul, in this letter, doesn't always tell us whether he's answering a question or not, which makes it difficult sometimes to know what are statements or what are questions like when, when I do a Q&A with you guys and you say a question and I want people online to hear the question, I don't just answer your question because they wouldn't understand the question I'm answering. So I repeat the question, then I answer it, Right? And so this is what Paul was doing. And if Paul was telling women to be quiet in the Corinthian church, when we get to the next passage where he tells women that if you're going to pray or prophesy in church, wear head covering. Now, wait a minute. I thought you told them that they had to be quiet in church. So how can they pray and prophesy in church and be quiet at the same time? So clearly he was not telling them. He would, clearly he was not saying that all women need to be silent all the time in church. Two other places in the book of Corinthians, he tells groups of people to be silent in church. When somebody's prophesying, the rest of you be silent. So that you can hear what the person's prophesying, and then you guys judge what it is. Another place it says when somebody's speaking in tongues, and somebody's going to, if there's not an interpreter, be silent. The whole point of him saying be silent wasn't to shut women down. It was to tell everybody, you guys are all talking at the same time. You're prophesying at the same time. Everybody's speaking in tongues out loud. He's saying, you guys, stop. Just do things decently and in order. Are you tracking with me? Paul also says in this passage, it says, just as the law says, a woman should learn from her husband at home, just as the law says. First of all, Paul was an expert in the Torah, the law of God. And he would know that nowhere in the law does it say that. Secondly, he would not use the law to teach anybody because he was saved out of the law and into grace. So these Corinthian men were trying to use a Jewish law, which they did not understand very well, to try to control their women because the women were dominating them and taking authority over them and disrupting the services. And so Paul would not use the law to try to shut women down. One, the law doesn't shut women down. And secondly, he would not be teaching out of the law to a new church that had a bunch of baby Christians in it. In fact, he said, if you are going to live by the law, you have to live by the whole law, and you are cursed. I'm going to go on with this. Uh, I'm going to say a couple more things about this, and we'll hit the last passage, and we'll close up. Paul does something that is absolutely revolutionary for, again, a former Pharisee. You remember in Judaism, women were the property of men, legal property, and they could divorce a woman for any reason at any time. And yet in 1 Corinthians, when the men write to Paul, is it right for a, a man to touch a woman? Paul responds with, the man's body belongs to the woman. He doesn't own his own body. And the woman's body belongs to the man. What? What? This Pharisee just said that a man's body belongs to the woman? There's two things happening here. One, 
is equality between men and women in society, which was not what Paul was raised in. So he's teaching kingdom theology. And secondly, the men were only asking about their own sex drives and what we should do about it. And Paul writes back saying, hey, women have a sex drive too. And you need to honor one another's sexual passions in marriage. He's elevating women to the same status as men in the kingdom of God. He also says that a woman should not leave her unbelieving husband. Now, remember, in Judaism, a woman could not leave her husband, which is like the woman at the well, right? That was married five times. And people say, well, she was a loose woman. I just heard a sermon yesterday on the radio about how, you know, Jesus was ministering to this uh, immoral woman. But in that culture, she could not divorce a husband. Only husbands could divorce wives. And so that means that she was discarded five times. But here, Paul is telling the women, don't leave your husbands. Again, elevating women to the same legal status as men when it comes to the divorce. And finally, he says that a believing woman would spiritually purify an unbelieving husband. Wow. That a woman would have that much spiritual authority and power before God that a believing wife would literally sanctify her unbelieving husband and children? Yeah, Paul, the oppressor of women. The last thing I'll say about this is the illogical conclusion that women, wives, in this Corinthian culture who are just learning about Christianity, It's all brand new to this church. Why would Paul tell the wives that you need to go home and learn about Christianity from your husbands when the husbands didn't know any more than the wives did? It was a brand new religion. It was a brand new faith. And as we just read in 1 Corinthians 7, there were many women in that church that had unbelieving husbands. So how could the wife go home and learn about Christianity from a non-Christian husband? That's why it's better to read this. What? The wives need to go home and learn from their husbands? What? What? Nonsense. Okay, last passage. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 through 26. Okay, this is going to be fun. Now, I commend you, same, same, same people group, same church, same town, Corinth, Okay. Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions or teachings which I've delivered to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now we talked about last week what a head means. It doesn't mean uh, to oppress and to control and to dominate. For, I mean, is that what God does to Jesus? God is the head of Christ. Does, Does God, as the head of Christ, suppress him, oppress him, control him, and restrict him? No, he raised him from the dead. He raised him up. He gave him the seat, the highest seat of authority over all of creation. Right? And as I told you last week in my relationship with Hope, God called her to be a scientist. I got under her and I built a, helped build a platform for her success to be all that God created her to be. In a company, in an organization, in a marriage, wherever you are the head To be a head means to be a life source to everyone around you. Your goal is to help everyone around you prosper and succeed. Not oppress, but empower. That's what God did to Christ. That's what Christ does to the husband. That's what the husband does for the wife. That's what the husband and wife do for the children. And we talked about that last week. So that's why he says, in God's divine order, God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the husband, and the husband is the head of the wife. And because it can't be a two-headed, anything's a monster. And so we, we learned that from the book of, Crete, uh, book of Genesis, which we looked at last week, so I can't unpack all that again. The same word used here for woman is wife and man is husband, which makes it a lot more sense in context. It says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Everybody say, in that culture. In that culture. Say it out loud, in that culture. 
Every man who prophes, prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. It's like when I went to northern India. You go into a different culture. I'm going to northern India. I'm walking around going, hey, hey, everybody. I'm up there. I'm there for 10 days evangelizing the villages. Hey, hey. You know what that means in northern India? It means the middle finger. I'm walking around India preaching the gospel for 10 days, flipping everybody off. Nobody told me until the mission trip was over. You told me. You were there. You know this is a true story. You're like, God. You've been flipping everybody off for 10 days. In that culture, this means that. In this culture, a man not having his head covered dishonors Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Everybody say it. In that culture. Why? Because the thousand prostitutes who are at the, uh, at worshiping Aphrodite shave their heads and worship to Aphrodite in that culture. And the women who were caught in adultery had their head shaved, like the scarlet letter, to show. That's why. But these women who have freedom in Christ are taking liberty. And Paul said, ah, da, 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 da. Because you live in that city where that means that, don't do that. And then he says, because of the angels. Like, what? The angel? What? what do you mean because of the angels? He's trying to teach kingdom divine order in that culture, like when I go overseas with, with Stephanie or others, I, you have to go through a class to understand the culture you're about to go into or you're going to be offending everybody and not even realizing it. Every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair off. But since it is disgraceful, disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, in that culture, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. He's taking... He's taking the glory of man and the glory of woman for Genesis, and he's applying it to this particular place, that emphasis to this. But then we take this out of context. Like a friend of mine, I love him. He's a great preacher, a great pastor. He's a good brother. But he puts on Facebook the other day, he said, if worship pastors, Josh, would stop wearing caps on their head, the presence of God would be stronger in our church services. And I'm reading this thread, and it's just dripping with religiosity, and everybody's spending their time arguing about head coverings and the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I, and I come walking into the church the next Sunday, and there's Josh with a backwards cap. I'm thinking, man, if he would just take that off. That's probably why we're not seeing as many answers to prayer in our church because of him. Look, he's wearing it right now. Ah, take it off. Ah. Oh, did you guys feel the wave when he took that off? Everybody say, in that, culture. in that culture. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Going back to their, in their belief, their, their, their uh, myth, myth, mythological beliefs. That's why he says that again. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man, which is true. But it was for equality and to rule together. It was about function, not value. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Because angels flow in the economy of God. That in that culture, a sign that a wife was under the covering of her husband, not a woman and a man, but a husband and a wife, that has to be divine order because now you're starting a family. You're in that family order. And so it's God, Christ, husband, man, but look, uh, uh, husband, wife, but look, I don't even use Ephesians 5 at weddings anymore because women get mad. Where it says that, you know, the wife is to submit to the husband, but it also says, husbands, lay down your, wife for your, your life for your wife. Right? And so th there's, that, there's that kingdom, that kingdom 
partnership. That the husband, like Christ, will give his life for his wife. Well, any husband that would give his life for his wife, that wife probably wouldn't have much trouble trusting her husband. You see, that's kingdom stuff. And the angels flow when we are operating in divine authority, divine structure. That's why, and then God protects the wife. I call it the, the uh, authority sandwich, which I taught last week. I didn't use this illustration, but it's the same thing. I call it the authority sandwich, where the Bible says that God, God says to the wife, submit to the husband. And then he says to the husband, if you don't honor your wife, I won't answer your prayers. And so when the wife is being disrespected by the husband, rather than nagging the husband, she needs to go to God and say, just, I'm going to submit to him because I'm not abuse. But I'm going to submit to him, even though I think he's a knucklehead right now. And because and, I'm submitting to you by submitting to him. And then God, and, and now, now it's in God's hands. And God will drill down on that guy. Just like, just like in the Psalms, he says, I, I wasn't confessing my sin and your hand was heavy upon me all night until my sheets were soaking wet from my perspiration because of my guilt. And I finally confessed my sin to you. That's God doing this on somebody who's out of order. This last phrase here is great. Though. Everybody say this one. Nevertheless, say the last, next three words. Nevertheless, in the Lord. Say it again. Nevertheless, in the Lord. He was talking about culture. Now he's saying in the Lord. Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Now he's talking about creation and kingdom theology, not Greek mythology. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are of God. In other words, men and women are equal in the kingdom. Because one came from one, and then one came from the other. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? That's not true in our culture. You see... Like in the 60s, see, you're, the way you dress, the way you, you wear your hair and all that, you're communicating something, right? Well, in the 60s, a, man, a guy with long hair, what did that communicate to us? He's a hippie. He's an anti-establishment, rebellious hippie, right? What's a guy wearing long hair today mean? It doesn't mean the same thing it did in the 60s, does it? Right? You can, I mean, you can, wear, you can wear a hair bun. And, and, and guys are like, oh, I guess you like hair bun. It doesn't, you're not thinking, oh, he's, he's a hippie. He's just a guy that likes long hair. Like I was calling Sam yesterday. I said, he, he's the Vietnamese uh, Fabio, right? <laughs> I showed him a picture. He goes, what? Because his hair is all, you know, flown. He's doing this. I said, dude, you're like Fabio. He goes, who's that? I looked up, showed him a picture. He's the Vietnamese Fabio. But he's not a hippie. He's not a re- rebellious hippie. Yes, dear. Um, so it's like back to the thing about you saying it's supposed to be read as questions. Mm-hmm. You know how a lot of Christians, I mean non-Christians. Okay. The, the PK is allowed to interrupt the sermon. Here. <laughs> well, I just had a question because a lot of non-Christians um, try to say the Bible was mistranslated. And then we defend it and say the Bible wasn't mistranslated, but aren't you clearly preaching that the Bible was mistranslated? I wouldn't say it was a good question. Everybody give her a hand. That was a good question. No, I wouldn't call it mistranslated. I would say that the culture was not taken into an account. Uh, And so it's the interpretation, not the translation. That's why it's so important for us to back up. See, in the Western Hemisphere, this was written in the Middle East. This was written in Ephesus and Turkey and Corinth and a culture. Then the gospel comes to the West and we preach out of it. And you talk to rabbis, you talk to uh, you know, people from uh, Turkey and Iraq and Afghanistan and these other places where they understand the culture and what it means. They say, well, you miss so much. And so it's not the translation, it's the interpretation. Good question. I wanted to do Q&A, but I'm running out of time. We've got two more things to do because we have a couple ladies coming up that are going to uh, briefly share, and then we'll be.
will be out. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her husband head uncovered? Does not nature itself tell you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him in that culture? But if a woman has long hair, it's to her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. He would not even, Paul would not even have to bring up the topic of hair if it wasn't part of that culture. I'd go into uh, universal truths. Don't, I mean, tr- all truth isn't universal. Like Paul, Paul tells Timothy, Paul says, if you get circumcised, you're under a curse. But he circumcised Timothy because he, didn't, he wanted to be able to have the opportunity to preach the gospel to some Jews. Another time, Paul takes a, shaves his head to take a Jewish vow, but he's not under Judaism anymore, but he does it so that he can have access to influence that city. Another time, Paul says, you can eat anything you want as long as it's uh, uh, cleansed through prayer. He says, but if eating meat offends a brother, I'll never eat meat again. You see, so you have to understand why he's applying certain truths in certain uh, situations. But here's this last phrase. It's so fantastic. The, the last phrase of the scripture. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. In the book of Titus, this is the last thing I'll say on this topic, and then we're going to bring a couple ladies up. In the book of Titus, there's, when it's talking about male leaders, it uses the word elders. When it talks about female leaders, it says um, older women. But it's the exact same word in the Greek, in the male and the feminine form. It should say elders and elderesses. Like, who, who wants a family where it's dad only? Like, dad is the one that is the only source of wisdom, application, counsel, or a, only a woman. See, that's why we have big brother programs for single moms. You've got to have that male influence because when the male is missing, something's missing that's very important. When the female is missing, when the mom is missing, something very important is missing. That's why God created the male and female, so that together they reflect the fullness and the glory of God. Why do we only have dads sitting at the table of the church? Why aren't moms allowed to sit at the table with the fathers and lead the church of the Lord Jesus Christ into its fullness? Speaking of, Stephanie, why don't you come up for a second? Last week she came up after the sermon and she said something to me that I want her to say to all of you. Um, Yeah, after last week's message, I just shared with John that um, I have felt so empowered at the gathering place. And I've been here for a little while now. And actually, I met John on a mission trip to India. I think it was maybe 18 years or so ago. And um, he started encouraging me in my gifts then, shortly after the church started supporting me as a missionary. And I just i am so thankful to for, for you specifically and the church encouraging me, empowering me to walk in my gifts because the world needs all of us to walk in our gifts. We need to encourage one another so that we can shine brightly out in the world, right? Amen. And this, is, this was 18 years ago. I'm just barely getting into my wisdom years, so I hope your, your encouragement's going to pay off. Amen. Okay, look. Paul writes to Timothy in the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus, worship of Diana. The church has apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, we already know that there are prophetesses in the New Testament. But you know what she is? She's an evangelist. Right? But in some churches, she's not allowed to be called in. She's a five-fold ministry evangelist. An evangelist is called to equip the body of Christ for the works of ministry. That's why she does 401. She's taught me how to lead people to Christ better than I was before. She has equipped me. Now, because she's a woman, maybe we shouldn't call her an evangelist and we'll call her teaching sharing. Okay? If she was a man, we're allowed to call her an evangelist, but not if she's a woman. Everybody go. Okay. All right. Watch this video, and then I'm going to uh, introduce you to two other uh, women in our church.
All right, we're a little bit over time right now, but um, I wanted to plow through all of that in one day, and now I want to invite um, Adrena and Daryl Lee up, and they're going to introduce you to a brand new ministry that Adrena is launching as a leading woman in our church. Come on, let's welcome Adrena. Okay. But Adrena is not a preacher because she does not like public speaking, but she is a minister in, uh, in, in, in every respect of the word. So, dear Lee, are you going gonna to share? Is that what's happening? Moses and Aaron here? Yeah, we're going to tag team. Uh, okay, so we are getting ready to launch Embrace Grace, which is a 12-week program um, that will teach women who find themselves in an unexpected pregnancy. Um, it will teach them about God's grace and God's love. I think I just went backwards. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's a 12-week um, support group for young girls who have experienced um, and who are experiencing an unexpected pregnancy and are considering abortion. Um, so it is um, a full curriculum leading them to Jesus, letting them know who they are in Christ, and helping them be brave to either um, be moms or um, choose adoption. Um, the 12 week, it's 11 weeks of curriculum, and then we have testimony night, we have a baby shower for these girls, and um, or a celebration of life if they choose to adopt, to choose adoption. Um, and a princess day as well to pamper them and love on them. And um, it might sound like it's something for just the women, but we also invite the whole church to wrap their arms around these girls who um, need love and need Jesus. Amen. That's awesome. Um, we're going to launch it by doing, it, it's called a Share the Love Party, and we're hoping to do that on February 26th, where we um, pack these boxes that get delivered to pregnancy centers, so when the girls go to the pregnancy centers, they're given this box, and, and then in there is information that will connect them to our church and the Embrace Grace group, and uh, so we're going to we want to invite the ladies on the 26th. If anybody wants to host that party, we would love to talk to you after service and um, impact the boxes together. Now, this Embrace Grace is uh, international, correct? Mm -hmm. Like, so um, I remember watching a video. How many, like, do you remember how many countries it's in or how many uh, outposts they have? It's in every state. It's in every in state. In the United States. And then I, I know there is one a couple in africa um i don't remember all the other countries though okay. australia yeah remember, that's but. awesome so i'm so proud of these two especially adrena uh who has her own story and so she has a uh heart of compassion for these girls and uh it's a mercy ministry and a ministry of restoration amen. and that's what the lord said we're about this year amen so god bless you guys okay i'm gonna pray over you so before, before we sit down, I'm going to pray with you. By the way, uh, some of the content I use today is found in this. This is the best book I've ever read about um, what I taught on today, about empowering women in the church. So I have three copies here that I'm willing to uh, pass out. So who would like a copy? All right. Agatha gets one. Somebody else who wants one of these? Uh, take one for your wife. You are a good, smart man, husband. Someone else? Ladies? Huh? Back here. All right. There you go. Watch. Oh, all right. Huh? It's called uh, Fashion to Rain. It's by Chris Bolleton from Bethel Church, who's going to be in town here uh, next weekend. So, all right. Let's bless these ladies. Lord, thank you so much. Hey, Stephanie, would you come on up and let's lay hands and let's uh, pray. I'm gonna, in fact, I'm going to let you lead us in prayer. Because um, I know this is an area of passion for you as well. God, you're so good. Thank you, Father, for um, creating us all in your own image, Lord, that we could bless and impact those around us. Father, I ask your blessing on uh, Adrena, your blessing on Daryl Lee, and your blessing, Father, on this 
Embrace Grace Ministry. Mm. Father, we pray that you would empower them, just bring supernatural connect, supernatural connections, Lord, to women that they can influence, Lord. Whose life would you want to be restored through these women and through our church? God, bring them to us, and we pray that restoration would happen. We pray for fruitful, blessed lives of their children and family lines, God. Uh, bless us that these families and um, our world would just see you, Jesus, in your light. Yeah. Thank you, God, that you hear our prayers, that you delight to answer, and that you equip and bless and use all of us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Yeah. Amen. Go ahead. Amen. I'm going to ask the prayer. Oh, ladies, would you stay up here? I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come up with you and Stephanie. Uh, in case there's any ladies uh, here or men who have been through that and you would like prayer and ministry, when people start coming up for prayer, um, you come up as well and let the Lord continue to restore you. Let's all stand. If all the prayer teams can come up. If you need physical healing in your body, if you would like to have these prayer teams pray over you and possibly get a prophetic word from the Holy Spirit for your encouragement, if you've never given your life to Jesus, heaven's a free gift, but you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, and these prayer partners will pray with you to receive the Lord, and you'll have all your sins forgiven, and God will breathe His Spirit into you, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you'll experience a peace you've never known before. Lord, I thank you for this powerful congregation, your people. And Lord, we love your presence in this house. Thank you that this is a year of rapid restoration. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom come and your will be done in this church and in our city as it already is in heaven. Lord, unleash your power, your presence, and your salvation in this city, Lord. And may we see and hear restoration stories that just blow our minds because you are our great God. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.